Kion Wolf, you just meddled in the short track halfpipe skeleton ski cross. Was the miscarriage you had last year on your mind? Uh, miscarriage? Yes, the miscarriage that you had last year. I didn't have a miscarriage. Well, you seemed very emotional about something right at the end there. I probably got something in my eye. See, in Sochi, the coal ash mixes with the sleet, and it just really gets in there somehow. It seemed like you were thinking about a deceased loved one. Oh, no, no. Somebody you love. Somebody who is now in the next world. You were thinking about... The spirits are asking me to acknowledge the name Tony. Is there a Tony you'd like to speak to? Are you going John Edward on me, dude? That is so weird. No, it's just that... Let me tell you a story. When I was young, I had a hamster named Sammy, and we did everything together. And then I went away to college, and my parents called me and said Sammy got sick and had to be put down. And I never, never... You never got to say goodbye? No, I didn't. Oh, how old was Sammy? Fourteen. Oh, well, that's really old, so it's kind of a lot less sad. But, you know, I can't stop crying about this. He was so little. <laughs> Did the vet put him down, or... No. Our next-door neighbor had a boa constrictor. <laughs> oh, God, so it was like the circle of life? That's so beautiful. Kion Wolf, thank you for crying. <laughs> now we'll send it back to you, Bob Costas. Today on The Nose, why does everybody at the Olympics have to cry? Plus, James Franco explains wacky actors and a meditation on the joys of catching a song on the radio. And now, skating to William Shatner's version of Mr. Tambourine Man, Colin McEnroe. That is my current skating music. Um, all right. She's a good crier, boy. She's, Man, she's gotten better and better. Weeping myself. That's right. So... Uh, before I even introduce the panelists, before I tell you what's going to happen, I just want to issue a warning. This is one of those do not adjust your radio warnings. From, t- <laughs> from time to time, you're going to hear me buzz and meep. It'll probably happen three times during the show, maybe four if we're not lucky. And that's because I'm, <laughs> I'm wearing, uh, from the Clinical Research Department of the University of Connecticut Health Center, uh, a 24-hour blood pressure monitor. So every, it's all, I'm all wired up with it. <laughs> every 15 minutes it goes off. And you're going to hear, like, the, it, it sounds like somebody's blood pressure is being taken. So if you don't adjust your radio, that's just, it's just me. Uh, I just wanted to say it before it happened because it's, it's probably going to happen in the next five or ten minutes. It goes off every 15 minutes. All right, so uh, with us is uh, Jim Chapdelaine, producer, Emmy-winning composer, recording engineer, guitarist, everything, really, uh, and uh, Luis Figueroa, who's a Trinity College professor and DJ, although not necessarily in that order. It depends on what mood he's in. And Carolyn Payne. That's the other thing I have to do. I have to keep a chart about what mood I'm in when my blood pressure is being taken. Uh, and I don't even know what mood I'm in most of the time. I'm not that self-aware. Carolyn Payne, actor, dancer, comedian, writer, and it turns, as it turns out, we find out this week, skater, um, sort of. Um, so uh, towards the end of the show, at least in the second segment, we are going to talk about why does everybody have to cry at the Olympics? Why are there what's happening right now? Uh, why does everyone have to cry at the Olympics? Why is NBC so intent on, on, on capturing these kinds of moments? Here, you hear me? Here, you yeah, hear me? Right, yeah. Right. Do you want me to uh, talk in a very calm voice? <laughs> no, because I, I want to know what my real. I want right. to know what this show is doing to me. Right. I want to know what hosting this show is doing to Please my health. Pressure. Just so think I, what it's doing so to I'll, listeners. I want to go right out to the edge with this thing, and we'll also talk about this essay, James. Franco wrote in the New York Times uh, about uh, why actors behave in wacky ways. Uh, and, uh, and somehow they're managing to link Shia LaBeouf 
to Marlon Brando, however tenuously. <laughs> so, um, but we're going to start out with an essay called Driving, also from the New York Times, called Driving to the Music of Chance. Luis was the one who suggested this. Oh, I didn't, did I, did I introduce everybody? Yeah, I did. All right. Yeah. You can see I'm distracted and flustered. So Luis is the one who suggested this, although I had read it on Sunday morning, and it kind of set up my day in an interesting way. It's by, by Beth Boyle Macklin, and, and it's about, um, she's a mom who has kids in her car, uh, sort of teenage uh, area kids. Uh, they're driving around New York, and she has either – because, in fact, the equipment in the car is not that great, and she also just doesn't feel like it for various reasons, she's decided to have commercial radio on in the car. Uh, and so she and her kids kind of experience whatever gets served up by the small cluster of stations that they can all agree to listen to. And so she says that usually we flip back and forth between classic rock on Q104.3 and the best of the 60s, 70s, and 80s on 101.1 CBS FM. Unless a double dose of Hotel California forces us to seek refuge in the mainstream pop on WPLJ. It's not so bad, really, she writes. My daughters explain who pink and fun are, but not why they're called pink and fun. And I explain to them, as my parents explained to me, that Creedence Clearwater Revival is singing about a bad moon on the rise, not a bathroom on the right. On a good day, we all learn something. Um, and she also, uh, Beth Boyle McLaughlin, kind of evokes the kind of joy that you get when something you can't control, this isn't your own little playlist that you're maintaining on your iPod or, or, or phone or whatever. This is just something that's happening that somebody else, a set of decisions somebody else is making and that you're kind of lining up with them. And she says, sometimes the green lights line up just right and we fly down Ocean Parkway, singing along to the glorious chorus of Boz Skaggs' Lido Shuffle. Lido, oh, oh, oh. That's going to set off my monitor. That's right, yeah, there you go. <laughs> Carrie Fisher's heroine in Postcards from the Edge felt that God was in her car radio and he would play her, song, her songs that she liked when he was happiest with her. I'm not sure about God, she writes, but I know when serendipity provides a perfect soundtrack to my life, I get a rare sense of both contingency and convergence. So, Luis, you're a DJ, which implies <laughs> wanting a certain amount of control over music. So how did this essay resonate and reverberate with you? Well, first of all, as anyone who grew up listening to a lot of music, in my case in Puerto Rico, um, I had certain radio stations that I will forever remember. Um, there was uh, Z93 or Z93, which was the leading uh, station in FM for salsa. Uh, there was Salsa uh, 96.5, which mixed salsa at that time in the 70s with disco and funk and boogie. And there were many others. And there was Radio Rock in the AM band for, for rock music, which uh, I, I'd also like to, to listen to. But to me, the essay brought uh, several points, and I'll just start with two in particular. Then we can move to, a, to what is today. The first one is the fact that in those days, there were real uh, radio disc jockeys uh, making the selection of the songs for you. Although we know that there were sometimes hanky-panky going on under the table, or payola, and so on. But there were certain DJs that you followed on particular radio stations who made taste for people, just like DJs in clubs make taste for people in terms of songs. And the other one that I like of her comments was the issue of serendipity, that, that as she's saying in, in that last part that you quoted, that you can be all of a sudden thinking about something, have a conversation, you're going through a certain place, and all of a sudden a song comes up that is an appropriate soundtrack for your life. Uh, so some of the things that I like, but um, I want to emphasize the issue of the human intervention of someone helping you discover music. 
That is true. And, and, and another thing I remember about my own helplessness, uh, and Jim, you and I are the same age, is sometimes it was really hard to figure out even what a song was. I, I went through a period where I went through about 15 years of trying to figure out what the name of a certain Cat Stevens song was. Sure, sure. And, and so I would, and I would say to people, because you'd hear some of it on the radio, and then like one time my girlfriend, my college girlfriend, this all was in the 70s, uh, she went into a gas station and turned off the car just as the DJ was about to say what the <laughs> song was, and I screamed. And so I, I spent years going up to people and going, Doctor, this is Cat Stevens' song, and it's like, now that I've done, 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 now that I was the only part of it I could really yeah. come up with. It's called Two Fine People. Please don't write to me and tell me about this. I know what it is now. But it took a long time because it just all this information was not served up to you in quite the convenient way that it is now. You know, I, not surprisingly, I have a lot to, to say about this, but I will try to, uh, to condense it. I, I will say that I think we all had that moment uh, of, of like being snake bit and thunderstruck when – for me, I remember being like, uh, I don't know, 10 years old or 8 years old, however it was, and literally having one foot out the door on vacation at my cousin's when I heard the birds come on AM radio and I was frozen. And, and – and I already knew about the Beatles, and I thought I was pretty hip, and I wasn't. I, I, it just blew my mind. So, and I will also say that the way we used to listen to music was a very communal way. Somebody would get the new Van Morrison album, and you would or Sgt. Pepper's, and you'd run over to their house, and everyone would listen to it. So that moment becomes sort of stamped in time communally. And people consume music very differently, uh, except in a car mm-hmm. now. And, and for me, with a 15-year-old also, I, I, I've had to surrender to the seven songs that they play over and over again, Imagine Dragons and Katy Perry and, and Beyonce. And, and after a while, I get some control and uh, can move it to the lower end of the FM spectrum. But, you know, uh, Carolyn, one thing – and by the way, if people want to call in and be part of this conversation, you know, what does it mean – what's the difference between having your own carefully curated and maintained playlist, where, which you can now make pretty portable? So anywhere you want to go, really, you can pop your earbuds on or whatever and just listen to what you wanted, and you can certainly interface your iPod with your car and all that kind of stuff. But uh, – and Carolyn's the, by far the youngest uh, of us, so uh, – but I'm assuming this is still a – a phenomenon that you remember, how happy, how much happier you could be if somebody, some radio person somewhere was playing a song that you liked and wanted to hear. There's some, there's some load of happiness that gets delivered there that you can't deliver to yourself just by playing the song for yourself. Absolutely. I had a similar experience to you where, you know, back I was like in high school and, you know, you'd hear a song on the radio and you needed to know who it was. And I had this horribly embarrassing experience where I went into Tower Records on Newberry Street. I grew up in Boston and I went up to a guy trying to find this song, which I later found out it just gets more embarrassing. It was like Sugar Ray, I Just Want to Fly. Mm-hmm. And I, I was trying to describe the song to him. I was like, you know, the song with, about flying. And he's like, uh, and then I, I was like trying to sing it and I, I don't sing. I yeah, just I just want to fly. And the guy's like, oh, you want that song. You know, <laughs> first of all, you subjected yourself to record store condescension. I mean, you know, here's know. a guy who's making six dollars an hour. I was young and foolish. Looking at you like you are the dumbest person. Like, oh, the Eagles? Is that for you? Right. <laughs> no, yeah. really. But, but it's, it's a double layer. It's, <clears throat> she yeah. wants this really dumb song, and she doesn't know how to do it. <laughs> right, right. And so, I behaved like an know. idiot to find it. So. And this guy just did like a, a, you know, a collection of all the obscure cramps songs, <laughs> singles. 
But, yeah. you know, the thing that she describes uh, about her interactions with her kids I think is an important thing, and it's kind of touching at times in the essay. She says, you know, on the one hand, uh, I sometimes hear my daughter working on her homework, and she's singing, my angel is a centerfold to herself, you know, and, uh, and so what have I done here? And on the other hand, she with the same daughter who's into Radiohead and stuff like that, at the end, uh, uh, what comes on? It was, it's an eagle song that comes on at the end. And uh, what's it's the Don Henley song, Boys of Summer. Uh, Boys of Summer comes on, and she thinks her daughter's going to want to change the radio station, and her daughter goes, oh, no, that's my jam. If I may um, want to add something that is perhaps, you know, obviously it's different in this panel, is that for me, the other element of this experience was coming to the United States as a graduate student in 1982 to, of all places, Madison, Wisconsin, and uh, intent on trying to learn as much English as I could, improve my English, because otherwise I would flunk in graduate school. So one of the things that I would do is I would be, con besides I love music, I would be constantly listening to the radio. And the frustration, because this is not my first language, of not being able to understand what the lyrics were saying a lot of times. Um, but at the same time, I remember certain songs and musicians that were from that first fall of 1982 that I discovered on FM radio. Uh, Born to Run by Springsteen. Uh, there was a song by Pat Benatar. Uh, there was a song by Bob Seger. Uh, those I will always forever remember because they were associated with specific moments during that first year. Dancing in your underwear when your parents had left you alone in the house. In yes, the case, in, another case, one. in the case right. of Bob Seger. Yeah, right. but up now, now we, we're doing all the reminiscing and the nostalgia and so on, but I, I, if you don't mind, I'd like to shift it a little bit and to the present. Because in the present, not everything is as bad as people think. Uh, it's just you have to rethink how things operate. For example, uh, yes, in an iPod or the iPod function in a cell phone, uh, you have your playlist. But there's also a shuffle function. And one of the things that when they were, Apple was inventing the iPod that Steve Jobs insisted was the invention of the shuffle function because you could have a ton of music and you put it on shuffle and it will bring up songs that you have not played in a long time. That's really the sole thing. I, I don't use playlists that much yeah. on my iPod. I prefer shuffle. And when I'm listening to the radio, I once got made fun of because somebody said, what's your favorite radio station? I said, scan. Yeah. Because yeah. I just, yeah. I like yeah. to kind of, I, I like to see what's out there. Maybe yeah. I'll listen to it for a little. Yeah, but I mean, but in terms of the, the, the human element that I was mentioning before, I am a big time fan of Spotify. And I pay the premium subscription so I can download songs on my phone and so on. Create, I, and I have a million uh, playlists. But one of the things in Spotify that I like um, is that you can subscribe to the playlist created by other people. And all of a sudden, you subscribe to some of these playlists and you put them to play, and it's like they're surprising you. They have songs in a particular genre or another that you were not expecting to find, that you would not have, you had not listened to. And so it's, it's, a, it's a way of democratizing the experience of being a DJ on a radio station. Because anybody can create any playlist, and any user can subscribe to everybody's playlist unless, unless the person declared them private. So I think that there are ways in which technology today allows us to do what we used to do, and in fact, sometimes even better. Because in the old days, there were only a few guys who were radio disc jockeys. Now anyone can do that. Well, let me just say this about the technology. Because obviously, we do, we do live in a world of marvels. And Jim probably has like you know, 87 different music apps on his phone. Uh, and, and so on the same day that uh, Beth's uh, essay came out, 
Uh, by the way, if you want to join this conversation, 860-275-7266, 860-275-7266. I did go on a long car ride to New York, and we sort of dealt with all these kinds of issues. The person I live with, the mysterious uh, woman that I live with, uh, she likes to listen to the radio. She likes to discover things. She likes that whole quality of serendipity. She doesn't want me jacking my uh, iPod into the dashboard. Uh, she wants just to let stuff happen. But anyway, we got home. Uh, we spent the day in New York, got home. We were watching Girls on HBO. Uh, at the end of Girls, they usually have some snappy, interesting little indie song that comes on. So this song comes on. Listening to this, and we're both thinking, well, that's pretty good. And then we're waiting for the credits at the end, and they don't tell you what the song is. And, and that's on HBO. Yeah. So I could, t- I could, I have a whole different take on this. Well, let me just let me just sort well, of finish, go, go, finish go, the, yeah. the technology part of this. So then the mysterious woman I live with says, we, we actually have, we're watching it on DVR. She goes, back it up. So I back it up. The song plays again. She points her phone at it. She's got Shazam on her phone. We, and it's really within, it's not even like a full bar, seconds. I don't think. Yeah, yeah. it's yeah. like seconds. within just seconds, the Shazam knows that this song is by the Living Sisters. Uh, here's what it is. Would you like to buy it? Would you press this button and it'll be your ringtone? Do this, do that. Um, and, and that's how fast it is. And, and in all the ways that Luis is suggesting, unbelievably accommodating uh, uh, at the expense, maybe Jim, of some mystery or some, you know, some negotiating that we might have had. You to know, no more, more importantly, yeah. and, and and this is something we have to talk about in the modern era. And yes, Steve Jobs. It's weird to me that a computer company reinvents the music industry, right? Mm-hmm. So it it benefits Luis in many ways because it appeals to his curiosity and it appeals to to uh, shuffle. And you don't know how many records I've mastered where I've seen people break down in tears after struggling for hours on the sequence of their album. And me to say, you know, only your friends are going to listen to it exactly as you intended. And then they're going to put it on shuffle. And this is like a big – like musicians want you to listen to it in a very specific order. And that's probably – we inherited that from the days when vinyl had an A side and a B side. Mm-hmm. They were very carefully structured. Mm-hmm. And, and that sort of evaporated with shuffle. And, and that's cool. I'm cool with that. But what I'm not cool with is, say, HBO taking this great song, slapping it on there without giving credit, paying a minimal royalty, maybe $1,500 to those guys for broadcasting national because it's a mechanical license on cable. So they, they're able to skate by that. And they're saying to the artist, well, you know, you're going to get a lot of hits. Well, this artist is going to get some hits because you're talking about it and it's a really catchy song that sounds like it should be an Apple commercial. <laughs> but when you get onto to iTunes, they pay 15 cents to the artist mm-hmm. for each purchase. Spotify pays 0.6%. Mm-hmm. So 0.6 cents mm-hmm. for each purchase to the artist. Mm-hmm. And Rhapsody pays 0.084 cents. So it's a diminishing 
return for the art. So what happens is a strangulation of the artistic community, this pyramid at which the artist is at the bottom of it or a totem pole where they're the scrunched up person and you have artists like Vic Chestnut who are taking their own lives over this. Um, it's the very people who are bringing the pleasure are the people who are being strangulated by this current system. Well, you know, speaking of pre- uh, pleasure um, and people, uh, and not to make uh, Carolyn a spokesperson for uh, a generation or like five generations or something like that, but you know, the other thing, you know, Luis talked about this at the beginning that we. Most of us can kind of remember a time when there were people on the radio who we kind of trusted or engaged with or something like that. If you go far enough back, there are these epic radio personalities like Murray the K who are giving credit for you know, introducing uh, certain artists to the public and stuff like that. And even now, driving into New York on a Sunday, nothing makes me happier than to get close enough to the New York state line that I can pick up Jonathan Schwartz on WNYC. I mean, Jonathan Schwartz is God if you like a certain kind of thing, you know, and you're listening for Jonathan Schwartz and what he's going to say about this, you know, and, and what he has picked out. And you know it's Jonathan Schwartz picking this stuff out. Um, but, I'm, you know, I, I, in your lifetime, have there been people like that on the radio, people who, uh, who, whose names meant something to you and whose musical choices meant something to you? You know, I really, I, I actually don't think so. I was hearing you guys say, I, I mean, I guess, uh, you know, when I was like a teenager, I would listen to like Maddie in the Morning on Kiss 108 FM in Boston. <laughs> you know, I, I remember listening to him and his antics and, you know, they'd play, obviously. The but what about DJs for your like famous like John Digweed or... or yeah, I guess I just never really invested that much yeah. into that. And then, you know, then I was living in New York and actually living in New York made me miss radio because in the time that I was living in New York, I never listened to the radio. I would, it, you know, by then you had like, right, your, right. no, your cell phone had music on it, your your iPod. And so I just was kind of, I was my own DJ. And, um, the, you know, I, I remember thinking how much I, I didn't hear new music right away always. Um, and it made me glad to have a car to drive around and hear hear the radio in again. But I don't think that there was a uh, there was no like radio god to me in my lifetime. But d- just as a sidebar, the situation from Jersey Shore mm-hmm. made sixteen million dollars last year as a DJ, and he was at the low end of it. The, uh, yeah, Paulie D. I am in the wrong profession. Yeah. <laughs> a, lot of, a, lot of, a lot of professional DJs are waiting for the moment when this guy disappears. Um, <laughs> but, um, you know, and then you also have Paris Hilton. Uh, yeah, that's right. Claiming yeah. to be one of the top five DJs in the world. Now, explain to our listeners what it means to be one of the top five DJs in the world. It doesn't mean what it meant to Cousin Brucey in, in 1960. Joey Reynolds. No, yeah. no, no. Uh, okay, there, there are many ways in which this happens. Is uh, there is a magazine called DJ Magazine that they do this popularity contest every year, and they release the names of the top 100 DJs in the world uh, around the fall. Mm-hmm. And so that's one way of knowing who is hot. But these are not DJs in the way in which the word DJ is normally understood. Mm-hmm. Because what makes these people famous is not that they are mixing songs in a show. Mm-hmm. Um, is that they produce their own songs. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the, calling them DJs is kind of a misnomer because in reality they are composers. I, I don't uh, think not the co- situation is composing. He's no, just no, no. in with his playlist. No, 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 no. The, the top DJs yeah. today in the world. Uh, and, and in are fact, remixing. No, 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 no. And if they tell you, if you are a young aspiring t- the DJ, they always tell you what is going to make you money 
is if you release your own music, if you compose your own electronic music using Logic or Fruity Loops, FL, whatever it is to compose your music, and then you release it, and people are going to like it. They might remix it. They might play in the clubs, and then they're going to hire you for gigs. Mm-hmm. And so Calvin Harris, which was the top-grossing DJ, quote-unquote, really is a music composer. Uh, they don't call him composers because they're, they call him producers, but whatever. Right. He made, according to Forbes magazine, $43 million last year. Now, of those $43 million, it's not on sales. That's the point I want to return to, that you made earlier about royalties. Um, what makes musicians money these days is performance, this live performance. So these top, you know, the top DJs in the world, they're being flown around. The, some, of them, yeah. some of them have their own uh, private jets. Right. And they're flying all over the place. They do, for example, a show in the, around 10 to 12 in L.A., and then they fly to Las Vegas, and then they, they do the 2 to 3 a.m. or 3 to 4 a.m. show. All right. so this I, I want to grab a call here from uh, Jonathan uh, on his cell phone. Hi, Jonathan. Hi. How are you, Colin? Good. Um, yeah, I'm just uh, I'm listening and going this. I'm thinking uh, WPKN in Bridgeport, 89.5. Uh, pretty much takes care of almost anybody in anything, in any type of music and public affairs, and it's totally listener-supported. They're two paid people, and they do an incredible job of doing the playlist for you. Yeah, and actually, I have to say, once again, having driven to New York and back in one day, there is a certain point somewhere around the time we get around Route 8 that WPKN comes into play. And they almost always are playing something really unusual, really something special, really something different. There just aren't – there are so few of those kinds of stations anymore. Their uh, motto, their, their motto, which is, is that some, some one of the uh, programmers' kids from 25 years ago, is some songs I like – some songs I don't like, and sometimes you just have to turn it off because it's awful. <laughs> but the rest of the That's time, a ringing endorsement. <laughs> yeah, I like I have, it. I like it. But, I have, yeah, but I it's, have no. Uh, I have no iPod. I don't have an iPad. I have my my phone, which has no music on it, and I my all of my radios have always been tuned to either you guys or or PKN. So, but you know that slogan speaks volumes because in fact. And I, for years, for 16 years, I worked uh, at a station that, that was part of a group of radio stations that included a lot of commercial radio stations. And one of the things that they, they didn't ever want you to do was turn off the radio. I mean, that was the, that was their, the, that's why they couldn't take any chances. They couldn't, they could never have the slogan that WPKN has. They could never do a kind of programming where occasionally you took a chance of letting, uh, having somebody turn off the radio because, you know, why take that chance? Uh, and I think that's sort of maybe one of the things that we miss, too. Hey, we're just to, to, in order to have time for the other stuff we want to talk about, we're going to take a quick break here. We'll be back. We're back with the nose as we wrap up that conversation about music and radio. Let me just uh, speed read some tweets. Vivian, I am all about shuffling. I like to be surprised. Sometimes you'll hear a song you forgot you forgot you owned. Suburban Recluse says, shuffle is a bad thing. 
who wants Iron Maiden thrown between Crosby, Stills, and Nash and James Taylor. Uh, Amy is tweeting, uh, I will forever love college radio stations and also streaming radio shows uh, in studio music sets online from uh, Seattle, Colorado, etc. Uh, Kevin tweets, uh, depends, uh, turns, uh, turns, uh, in terms of shuffle, depends on what it is. Some albums become odd when placed in shuffle, like Joe's Garage. That would be a Frank Zappa, Mothers of Invention uh, reference, I think. Uh, and Larry Mack tweets, uh, moved, in, moved, moved away in 1995, but I missed the college radio stations in and around Hartford. Used to follow specific DJs at WRTC and WHUS. Um, there are more tweets coming in here. All right, so, and somebody's tweet, uh, tweeting, uh, KTAO in Taos is the most unique radio station in the U.S. They produce their own commercials and are just everything radio used to be. I assume they're streamable as well. All right, so we have to shift from there. We're going to take a look over at so- Sochi just for a second, the Olympics. Um, one of the things that happens every single Olympic, really, and was uh, chronicled most recently in The New Yorker, uh, an essay that we circulated around, is this kind of obsession with emotional moments. We've got a little clip here. Uh, probably you've heard it by now. This is uh, uh, Bodie Miller uh, finishing up uh, his ski event, in which he, he medaled. And so uh, an interviewer from NBC is asking him a series of questions about his emotions. Let's hear that. Bodie, you're showing so much emotion down here. What's going through your mind? Um, I mean, a lot, obviously. Just uh, a long struggle coming in here and uh, just a tough year. And uh, I know you wanted to be here with, with Chile really experiencing these games. And how much does it mean to you to, to come up with a great performance for him? And was it for him? Um, I mean, I don't know if it's really for him, but I wanted to come here and, and uh, I don't know, I guess make myself proud. But When you're looking up in the sky at the start, we see you there, and it just looks like you're talking to somebody. What's going on there? Sorry. All right, so that's Bodie Miller. He's talking about his uh, brother who died. His brother also um, uh, a winter athlete who, in fact, was um, died from a seizure and was not taking his seizure-controlling medications partly because he thought it might affect his performance a little bit. But So, um, Carolyn Payne, there have been a lot of reactions to this, and Bodie Miller ultimately said he didn't really have a problem with it. But uh, I could see by a certain amount of body language you were exhibiting during that clip that, that maybe you did have one. I did. I know he said that he didn't blame that reporter, but I really can't help but blame her. I, I, I mean, I, I think that she she was just pushing the buttons. And I get that that's, you know, they're trying to keep their ratings up and they're trying to make everything this, like, human interest so it goes beyond sports so that, you know, the, the people watching who aren't necessarily really invested in the sport itself are getting invested by these people and, and feel something and... I, but I just could not believe that she went ahead and just pushed those buttons for him at that moment. Uh, I, I mean, because, like, already your emotions are so high. Like, first of all, I, I'd be in, in tears just having to be on skis on the top of a mountain. And then, <laughs> you know, then you, 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 get, you get there, you, you win it, and it's this the wave of emotions that someone would have to be feeling at that, at, at that point. I mean, I, I'd just be crying Tears of joy, happiness, fear, excitement, and you know, then to bring up something so personal and and, and emotional, it was like really, <laughs> I, I I did not appreciate what they what they did there for him. Anybody feel like defending it? I don't, except if it had happened in curling, 
I think it would have been legitimate. I could I could have handled that. Um, well, I, I'm not sure. I think that NBC manipulates all of this. Clearly, there's a whole uh, approach that they have where they spend far too long on all these personal interest stories instead of showing the competitions. Uh, you don't see that in, in, in the broadcasting of the Olympics uh, in other places in the world. On the other hand, if I were the journalist and I see this person crying in this situation, why not try to pursue it? I'm going to jump on that. Yeah. You know? Did it remind anyone of broadcast news? Oh, yes. The, the, the <laughs> didn't it seem very like it's just so the end is already determined? Yeah, I mean, I think, uh, first of all, a few things about this. I mean, this is a, a constant problem. One of the things that has been um, criticized is the fact that obviously none of this stuff is happening in real time. It's all happening kind of earlier in the day. We watch it at prime time, by which time NBC has had the opportunity to make a bunch of choices about it. Mm-hmm. And, and most of the choices they have made have not involved editing out uh, any of that emotional binder. You know, it's it's sort of all in there. Um, one of the other things that the essay we saw criticized was Lyman Courier, who's a freestyle skier who who falls uh, as he's trying to ski through this wild half-pipe skiing course. These sports, by the way, they always seemed like they were invented like 20 minutes ago. But, um, yeah, they should have changed. But whatever that sport is, he got really hurt in it. And then he's lying on the ground, and he's making these kind of bleating noises, you know, like really a, a wounded animal. And per- having had a similar injury once in my life, I, I totally get why you make that noise. Um, <laughs> but, you know, I mean, they just sort of kept the camera on him while he made that noise. And then by 9 o'clock or so... When they'd had six hours to think it over, they, they thought it over and they thought, oh, you know, let's hear him screaming. Uh, that was reminiscent to me of, remember that viral video, Grape Lady, the news reporter who falls, she's smashing grapes and then falls off of, falls down and you, you don't see her, but you just hear her going, uh, 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 and that was what that was to me. Yeah. It was almost like they were, I, I, again, I just felt like it was a gratuitous Use of well, I always think when I hear an incident like the one you described, it was like when Sally Struthers was uh, pleading for food for these starving kids and legitimate cause and everything. But you know what? You could turn around and give them a sandwich right now. Yeah. Well, um, but let's turn this around because this conversation <clears throat> is all happening from the perspective of what NBC does. NBC would not be doing this every Olympic, summer or winter, if the audience would be upset by this. If they would, like you were saying before about turning off the radio, they would turn off the TV. They continue to do it because the market research, the focus group research shows that this works. So then for me, the next, the next question is, what makes people want to see these things? Well, I think Carolyn kind of alluded to it. Part of it is they don't know the sports very well. They don't have – and you were saying that in in other countries this kind of thing isn't quite as necessary. Probably in some of these other countries, the familiarity with a whole series of Nordic sports is high enough so that people – they already have some things that they know about some biathlon uh, competitors and and maybe even know a little backstory. But they also – they can really just get into the biathlon-ness of the whole thing, whereas Americans, they don't really know very much about most of these sports. They don't think of them more often than every two or four years, really. So absent, I mean, these people aren't meaningful to Americans unless somebody explains why I they're I guess it's they're, they're trying to humanize them. Well, yeah. and so it's in like the last four years, yeah, humans, it, is it reality TV has spun maybe exactly. the emotions mm-hmm. of, yes. of American viewers so that they need this sort of moment yep. of 
of accumulation, this emotion, emotional accumulation. I mean, I guess it's just interesting because think about, I mean, these are Olympic athletes. They do things that we definitely can't do. I mean, you could train and, and try to do it, but they're, they're doing amazing things. Like I'm watching these things and I'm thinking, oh my God, I could never, I, w- I would never want to do that and never be able to do that. And I can do could. some pretty you incredible could. things. You but could. <laughs> You're a nice dancer. The person <laughs> who's speaking right now, just for, for context, this week put on ice skates and a red jumpsuit uh, for some kind of comedy video and did Swiffer curling. Yeah. Um, I fell down a lot. And fell down a lot. So you, your respect for these athletes, I'm just sort it, of it emphasizing that. It went way up, yeah. yeah. But, you're, you know, you're watching this and they, they really do. They seem like superhumans. And then to, to show them in a light that humanizes them, I think, is an interesting tactic because it's kind of that, that thing that, that we as humans are drawn to with everyone. We like when people are more like us. We like that we're like, oh, well, they're, they're more human. I, I think that that's an interesting way well, to try an, to understand it's a, it's why they It's a price of admission, too. I mean, I, 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 Bodie Miller ordinarily is not the emotive guy they mm-hmm. want him to be. So I'm going to make a really bizarre correlation and, and say there's something of inside Lewin Davis in all this in the sense that, you know, ins- Lewin Davis won't emote the way that everybody wants him to. You know, he just <laughs> he wants to sing his folk music and that's it. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's not going to smile. He's not going to shave his beard differently. He's not going to join Peter, Paul, and Mary. You, and and you, you, he pays a big price for that. It's, it's, the world has kind of decided. And, Luis, I think you're probably right. We've kind of decided. Decided, this is what we want. Yeah. So give it to us or else. And I think that Caroline was uh, nailing it in the sense that we want to see these people as real humans who have similar emotions of frustration and pain and anger, uh, you know, depression in the context of losing or even getting injured, which is worse. Um, but I also think that Jim nailed it as well, is that today... Uh, reality TV has created what I would call emotion pornography. And so, so <laughs> in far more intensely than before, before people watch soap operas. Yes, that was emotion pornography. But now with, the, with reality TV, is far more intense, uh, continuously on, on cable television. And, and, and I think that's part of the perpetrated as reality. As rea- it's presented as reality when in fact it's not. not. <laughs> uh, it's not. It's concocted. But I think both of you were right on the money. I mean, these are the two phenomena, I would say, that are the two major explanations. Well, I think I can make a very nifty segue. We don't have a lot of time to talk about this. Between that, what you guys just said, uh, and this essay written uh, by James Franco uh, in the New York Times a couple of days ago. It's about Shia LaBeouf, who's been who's had a, sort of a, a patch, a bad patch of public behavior that have involved accusi- accusations of plagiarism, uh, followed by apologies in which he seemed to plagiarize a style of apology from somebody else, uh, and then uh, <laughs> then wearing a paper bag over his head that said, I am not famous anymore at a red carpet premiere of his own movie, which is called Nymphomaniac. Last week, he staged an art show called uh, Hashtag I Am Sorry that involved having him sit opposite visitors to a Los Angeles gallery while he wore a similar bag over his head and stared at them through cut-out eye holes. And, and so, Jim, one of the things that James Franco tries to do in this piece is kind of make a similar point, which is that uh, actors sometimes aren't in control of the public perception of them. That often is determined by the movies that they're in and how people react to the movies that they're in. And then sometimes they're sort of either penalized for being the person they appear to be in their movies or not being the person that they appear to be in their movies. And somehow or other, they don't want to wind up like Bodie Miller. They have to sort of take back their own personality. And that's what he believes Shia LaBeouf is trying to do right now, is, is take control of his own image. 
I, I'll hand that. So I wasn't sure, reading James Franco, is he defending him or is he just sort of firing a, a warning shot like, dude, you know, this is rough water you're in now, so you, gotta, you, you need to tighten things up a bit. As I recall, uh, Sheila Booth was sort of one of the anointed ones by Steven Spielberg and a number of other people. He was a kid, and Spielberg took a liking to him. So he's been in the spotlight for a long time. And suddenly he started doing – he started plagiarizing people and stuff like that and got nailed on that and just didn't know how to do something wrong or how to make an apology. And the apology was also plagiarized. Exactly. <laughs> you know, so all of a sudden he turned into a uh, politician instead of an actor. So I think what James Franco was saying is, you know, just go stay in your house for a while and Well, I think act. that James Franco was trying to reinterpret what he was doing uh, as performance art. Because he did this thing of sitting on a museum. Because it's James Franco, though. Yeah, yeah, they are sitting sitting there with a the bag saying apologize and yeah. so on. But at the same time, he says, as performance art, it's a great project, but don't overdo it. Yeah, yeah. Well, there's a meta thing going on because James Franco is always being uh, uh, parodied for his endless curiosity and all the things he could do in his performance. Well, and he's, art, right? he, he says the choices that he made, like joining General Hospital uh, at a time when he was making sort of Oscar-worthy movies, was represented that kind of rebellion. I mean, significantly, Carolyn, one of the things that he does in this piece is he talks really about four different actors, himself, Shia LaBeouf, Joaquin Phoenix, and Marlon Brando. Um, now, Marlon Brando, I think, sort of earned the right to be this weird, uncooperative person, <laughs> you know, to a greater degree than those other guys did. Yeah, I, I think that the interesting thing for me was how James Franco came across in, in this article. I hadn't really read any of his writings yet. And then when I, you know, read this, I, I definitely want to want to read more. I want to get a little bit more inside of where his, but it was almost, this, it, it, well, it wasn't almost, it was a very egotistical approach to. James Franco? I know, <laughs> I know. I wasn't, no. I wasn't shocked about that, but the, the way he, you know, is trying to pass off that he has this older, wiser knowledge and, you know, he's like what, like six years, eight years older than, um, than Shia LaBeouf. And like, he just is going on about how uh, he, you know, he, he needs needs to take some time off, and uh, but James Franco is He's not one to be passing I'm going to just cut this off just because we won't get endorsements otherwise. Uh, so just we'll just leave you with the thought that really pretty much everybody is older and wiser than Sheila LaBeouf. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> well, I would actually James Franco. Just leave it there. All right. Uh, we'll uh, maybe there'll be time for that as we come back for endorsements <laughs> after this. Pretend I'm famous Pretend you've seen me in the street Pretend I'm famous And say you always hoped we'd meet I will be gracious I will be funny and sincere Pretend I'm famous Then ask me what I'm doing The U.S. is playing Canada in hockey right now, and it's really important that we win because if we lose, we have to keep Justin Bieber. Today's show was produced by Betsy Kaplan and me. Our interns are Jane Ashley and Skylar Magnoli. Katie Talarski is our executive producer. Greg Hill appeared in the intro and tweets for us at WNPR Colin. The part of Bill Curry was played by Murray the K. For show pages, articles, and vines of the Faith Middleton Show staff screaming wolf, wolf at a French bulldog out in the hallway, visit our website, wnpr.org. 
On Monday, fearless TV critic Willa Paskin joins the scramble. And now, back to Colin. Yeah, we had somehow or other meant to include in our conversation about emotions at the Olympics and sort of uh, stage-managed uh, emotions at the Olympics, the uh, the hoax played by Jimmy Kimmel and one Olympian that appeared to be a wolf walking around in the hallways of one of the Sochi hotels, and it was no such thing. Um, all right, so uh, that's what that was a reference to anyway. Uh, so we're here with uh, Carolyn Payne, Luis Figueroa, and Jim Chapterly, and it's time for endorsements, things that they know about that maybe you'd like to know about. Carolyn, what have you got for us? All right. Um, the new restaurant in West Hartford, Blue Plate Kitchen, is really good, and they have wine on tap which is really, I, I guess it's something that's very common uh, out in California now, but it's awesome. So go check that out. And I also want to endorse the Lego movie. I heard mm. that. Yeah. yeah. It's yeah. really good. I heard people are yeah. excited about it. All right. Okay, uh, three quick things. Uh, a book called Labyrinths of Reason, we've talked a little bit about it, by William Poundstone, uh, kind of addresses the frailties of what we actually can know or truly do know. Um, and it's, you know, you can read a chapter at a time. And uh, there's a book called Arguably by Christopher Hitchens, who's just a great author who you want to smash in the face sometimes, but it's pretty hard to lose, to win an argument with him. And, and uh, lastly, uh, uh, True Detective, once again, and specifically for the way that Matthew McConaughey smokes a cigarette. And if you watch it just for that, you will come away a better person. I, I feel that this, the smoking, the con, there's sort of two time frames in True Detective. One is the past and one is the present. And, and he's being interviewed by these other two detectives in the present. Uh, and uh, that smoking that goes on in the present, I find distracting. I mean, it's so horrible. It, it's, it's so voracious and wolf-like in its quality. Like, like how does like, he not have lung cancer by the end of 20 minutes yeah, of that, it really each episode? It seems like the most self-destructive smoking I've ever seen in my life. Anyway, yeah. All right, I'll try to run through my things very quick. A um, uh, couple of endorsements. Um, first one is a play at the Hartford stage titled A Song for Twilight that opened last night. It was written by Noel, Noel Coward. Um, it will run through March 16th. Uh, again, it's a play at the Hartford stage called uh, A Song for Twilight. The writing, the language is just amazing. The character psychology, the plot twist, and the performances by the actors, but it's also very funny, uh, very, very deep. I will not say what it's about because otherwise you will not enjoy it. Um, second, the Connecticut AIDS Coalition has its annual fundraising extravaganza on the night of the Oscar Awards. Uh, they rebranded it now as, quote, the Red Carpet Experience, and it will take place on Sunday, March 2nd, and I have the Oscars beginning at 7 p.m., or if you pay the VIP ticket uh, donation, uh, uh, you can go to the VIP reception at 6. It will be at the Spotlight Theaters uh, on Front Street in downtown Hartford uh, next to the convention center. And the thing about this that I like is that people can come dressed as a character in one of the nominated movies. And that's exactly what I plan to do this year, but I will not tell you which movie. And a plug, right? Calling the plugs are things that in the future. Mm -hmm. um, the Mark Twain House will have an exhibit beginning on March 14 at your service about servant life in the Mark Twain House. And a special nighttime tour of the servants' quarters uh, that will begin on April 14th. Again, that's the Mark Twain House about servant life inspired by the Downtown Abbey series. 
Um, okay, I will co-endorse the Oscar Night AIDS Party. It's a, an event that Peter Shapiro and I started I think 15 years ago now, uh, and it's always fun. And it'll be at Spotlight this year. That'll be a, a great place for it. So get your tickets now, though. They need to, to know how many people are coming because there's always great food and uh, great things to drink, and uh, a drink named after Kyone Wolf this year, I think. So, uh, But they, want, they need to know how much of it to have there. So buy your tickets now. Uh, a few things that I want to endorse, it's the, also some plays and movies. Since we're talking about Oscars, um, many people think a movie called The Great Beauty is going to win the uh, Best Foreign Language Oscar. I, I certainly would be pleased if it did. It's one of the truly amazing movies that I've probably ever seen. Uh, this is an Italian movie in which sort of this one 65-year-old man, this party boy who's been sort of frittering his life away instead of writing a lot of novels, takes you through the heaven and hell of Rome. It is, it's a long movie, about two hours and 40 minutes. I think it's playing at Bantam Cinemas right now. If you live anywhere out there towards Litchfield, uh, you really ought to see this. It's a, you need to see it on a big screen, too. It's just not going to work in your home theater. Smaller movie uh, was also shortlisted for a while for a foreign language uh, from Chile called Gloria, uh, about a wo- woman sort of in her 50s. Yeah, Luis likes that too. Uh, it's uh, playing, I think, still over on New Park Avenue and probably some other locations right now. It's a lovely movie sort of about what it's like to be a woman of a certain age and trying to um, and being divorced and trying to sort out uh, one's options. And Total this, dancing. And so, yes, a lot of, a lot of dancing. Uh, and then lastly, playing here right now at the Bushel Peter and the Starcatcher, I did not expect to like this uh, as much as I did. It is as if the Marx Brothers and Monty Python collaborated uh, on uh, on a sort of prequel to Peter Pan. Uh, there's a guy named John Sanders who is turning in a real virtuoso comedy performance as a, as the villain, Black Stash. He is he's worth the price of admission anyway. But it really is one of those funnier than necessary shows in which joke after joke after joke just piles on with incredible physical comedy. Uh, I was I was truly amazed. Comes out of the, out of the New York Theater Workshop, which is also where Once originated the musical version of Once, which will be done at the Schubert in New Haven next week, and where I just saw What's It All About, Backrack Reimagined, one of the most incredible things I've seen in a long time. But that's closing. I can't endorse that right now. Uh, but anyway, go see Peter and the Starcatcher. A few nights left there at the Bushnell. Uh, you'll have a good time. Kion Wolf, you just won the gold in the downhill curling biathlon. <laughs> How do you feel? You know, I just couldn't get my dead cat Momo out of my mind the whole time. I just, I miss his little face, you know? Whoa, 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 whoa. Don't cry. Here, have a Hot Pocket. Oh, thanks, man. I feel a lot better. <laughs> 